Welcome to the Impact 360 Institute podcast, where our goal is to explore biblical worldview and servant leadership to equip you for everyday influence. Here's your host, author and director of cultural engagement, Jonathan Morrow. Is the idea, don't think, just believe, biblical? And how do you test another worldview? There are so many different belief systems out there. We'll talk about this and other important questions with prolific author and teacher Nancy Piercy in this episode. But first, I want to share about a brand new resource that we've created called Explore Truth. Do you find yourself unsure about how to talk about what you believe as a Christian? Do you worry about coming across as judgmental or arrogant when you talk about your faith? Do you want to know how to respond to common slogans like, that's just true for you, but not for me? Then our new study is for you. When you're done, you'll have a much deeper understanding of why truth matters and how knowing truth can set you free to live with confidence. You'll be fully prepared to help others around you break free from the riptide of relativism. Watch a free episode at exploretruth.tv. Now to our interview with Nancy Piercy. Well, welcome to the Impact 360 podcast. My guest today is Nancy Piercy, and Nancy Piercy is a professor of apologetics and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University and editor-at-large of the Piercy Report. Hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual, Piercy has lectured widely on university campuses, including Stanford, Dartmouth, and Princeton. She's been featured on national radio and television, including C-SPAN, and in the nationally released Focus on the Family film, Irreplaceable. Her work has been published in Human Events, The Daily Caller, Christianity Today, The American Thinker, and she's been an invited lecturer at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, she's the author of several books, including The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, and two ECPA Gold Medallion Award winners, Total Truth, Liberating Christianity from Its Cultural Captivity, and How Now Shall We Live, co-authored by Harold Fickett and Chuck Colson. And her most recent book that we'll be talking about today on the podcast is Finding Truth, Five Principles for Unmasking Atheism, Secularism, and Other God Substitutes. It's just so great to have you with us on the podcast today. Thank you, Jonathan. It's good to be here. Yeah, and just personally, I want to thank you for your work. I haven't had the opportunity to share this with you publicly, but your book, Total Truth, had a huge impact on my life um, when it first came out around 2004. It was, it was the first book I really read about Christian worldview, that, and along with uh, J.P. Moreland's Love Your God With All Your Mind, really gave me a compelling vision of living an integrated life and just helped me solidify my calling to really help the next generation think Christianly. So I just want to thank you for your investment um, via your books in my life. Well, thank you. I didn't know that, so it's good to hear that. Yeah, so it's just just, just really appreciate your writing and, and just encourage everybody who's listening to our podcast today. There's just so much good stuff in here. But, you know, you start off your book and you talk about an interaction that you had on Capitol Hill where someone surprised the room by sharing, I lost my faith at an evangelical college. Can you share a little bit more about that story and what happened? Yeah, this was um, an amazing story because I had been invited to give a lecture on Capitol Hill, and this was for my, my book, Total Truth, the one that you just mentioned. And afterward, after I was finished with my lecture, a congressional chief of staff stood up and announced to everyone in the room, I lost my faith at an evangelical college. So, of course, I had to grab him afterwards and, and get his story. And what he said was, the professors were Christian. They went to church on Sunday. But when they went in the classroom, even though it was a Christian college, they basically just taught from the textbook. 
and most of the textbooks are uh, written from a secular perspective. And so he said, I wasn't getting an understanding of how to have a Christian perspective on these fields. He was a, uh, seeing as how he's working in Capitol Hill, as you can imagine, he was studying most, mostly things like pol political philosophy and the other uh, social sciences. And he said, I literally made appointments with my professors to talk to them during office hours, and I asked them, how do you relate your Christian faith to what you teach in the classroom? And he said not one of them could give him an answer. And he eventually decided that Christianity didn't have any answers. And he abandoned it. And he was not happy about that. He wasn't a rebellious kid who wanted to get rid of his faith. He really was sad. But he said, I just could not see that Christianity had any intellectual grounds. And so you wonder, how common is that? Well, it, when, in my research for Finding Truth, for my book, Finding Truth, I found a survey of the CCCU. That's the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. These are the evangelical colleges. And the survey found that only about half the faculty said they were confident they could give a Christian perspective in their field. Only half. So that's why it's so important. This is part of why I am so passionate about teaching Christian worldview, because even in our Christian schools and churches, we've often sort of given up the notion that Christianity has answers for the wider cultural questions. We tend to treat Christianity as though it were limited to the religious sphere, to church and Bible study and so on. But we are not seeing how it covers political philosophy, how it gives us answers for educational philosophy, how it gives us answers for the art and culture, for economics and so on. We often don't see how it applies to the rest of life. My selling point, so to speak, when I talk to Christians about it, is I say, how can you have the joy and the power that God promises us in Scripture, if you keep your Christian faith locked up into just one part of life, you need to find a way to unlock it, unleash it, liberate it, and see how Christianity gives us a perspective that applies to every area of life. And then you will really experience the joy and the power that God promises us in Scripture. Yeah, I love that. I think that is so important what you just said, because I think many times, and this is my experience of working with students and whether it's our gap year or summer experiences or whatever, they, they kind of have such a small vision of what they think Christianity is that it's not really compelling to them. Is And that, sound, that seems to be what you've found, too. And you're trying to say, no, look, this we don't have to keep separating this stuff. And that's such a powerful insight. You know, as I've read your work, you know, I know this isn't just academic to you. I know this is kind of your story, too, isn't it? Can you share a little about your own experience of struggling <laughs> to find answers to your questions as a teenager? Exactly. You are so right. I was raised in a Lutheran home, but it was the same thing. I went to a secular you know, public school, and I had mostly secular friends, Jewish friends, at any rate, non-Christians, and all, all of the teaching was from a secular perspective. The teachers, the textbooks, everything was from a secular perspective. And so I simply started asking, well, how do we know Christianity is true then? Since we seem to be such a tiny minority, how do we even know Christianity is true? That's all I was asking. And I could not find any Christian adults who could give me any answers in my family, my church, and so on. I asked a Christian college professor once, why are you a Christian? And he said, works for me. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I thought, 
that's it? <laughs> that's the only answer you have? I actually had an opportunity to speak to a seminary dean, and I thought surely someone with that kind of theological training would be able to give me a better answer. And he said, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. As though it was a psychological phase and that I would outgrow it. And so this is when I, I decided, this is very intentional, I, I was about halfway through high school, and I said, look, the only reason I'm not Christian is my family. And I have Jewish friends. The only reason they're Jewish is because of their family. I said, obviously, that's not a good enough reason to believe anything. If the same motivation leads to opposite results, then it's not an adequate epistemological principle. <laughs> I didn't think of it in exactly those terms, but I realized I just didn't have any reason to know Christianity was true. And it seemed to me that a matter of intellectual honesty, that if you don't have good reasons for something, you can't really claim that you believe it. So I very intentionally put aside my Christian faith and embarked on a search for truth. And this was a difficult time of my life because if you're not a Christian, maybe you can be a happy pagan <laughs> and not know what you're missing. But I had known that God loved me, that God had a wonderful purpose for my life, that there was a reason for living. When I gave all that up, even though it was just a child's faith and it had not grown with me, which was the problem, nonetheless, I realized if there was no God, then there was no purpose for life. If there was no God, then there was no foundation for ethics. And how, how did I make day-to-day -day decisions? How did I know what, what was right or wrong? How did I know that the things I was deciding really mattered? How did I know that we weren't just a chemical accident? You know, life is just an accident of chemistry, according to evolution, on a piece of rock flying through empty space. How did I know what happened after death? I realized I had no answers to any of these questions, so I was really searching very intentionally. And it was about midway through college that I stumbled across Labrie, the ministry of Francis and Edith Schaefer, which is in Switzerland. I was going to school in Germany. We had lived overseas. And so I was going to school in Germany and I stumbled across Labrie. And this was the first time that I encountered apologetics, people who could answer questions about how do we know Christianity is true. To tell the truth, people who knew the questions better than I did. Right. That was what was really impressive is they could say, okay, so you don't know if there's a right or wrong. To give just one example, I was the one in my high school, among my high school friends, who was saying, you can't say anyone's right or wrong. I didn't even know there was a label for that. It's called relativism. At Labrie, I found out there's a label for this. Here's where it comes from. Here's where it leads to. It leads to the fact that you can't really stand up to any evil. You can't stand up to the Holocaust. You can't stand up to... Well, back then, we didn't have ISIS, but it would be the same principle. You can't stand up to ISIS, people just beheading innocent people. And I realized, okay, I need to rethink. And that was what led eventually. It took a couple of years still. It wasn't overnight. It took several years, but it was, that's how I became a Christian, as I finally became convinced that Christianity had better answers than any other worldview out there, whether religious or secular. So... That is it's such a big part of my own life. That's why now at Houston Baptist University, I teach apologetics, because I'm really convinced that young people need to have answers to their questions. We need to take their questions seriously. Yeah, and thanks for sharing your story. It's such a powerful story. I, I so resonate with that, too, because 
you know, unfortunately, you know, well, well, it gets at this slogan you mentioned a lot in your book, this, this pervasive idea of, hey, don't think, just believe. And that's, that's a pretty common misunderstanding, I think, out in the church today. But talk about, is, is that a biblical way to view things, this slogan of don't think, just believe for Christians? Well, I love the way Jesus said things like, if you don't believe my words, then believe on the evidence of my miracles. That's how it's translated in some of the versions, the evidence of my miracles. So he was intentionally saying there is a valid place for evidence, for reasons. The early apostles said, we are not giving you fables. We're giving you eyewitness testimony, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we've handled with our hands. First John 1.1. 1, 1. There are so many places. Oh, Paul, one of my favorite lines in scripture, and we often overlook it. But it's such a colloquialism when he says to the, he's talking to the Roman rulers, and he says to them, the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were not done in a corner. I love that phrase. You realize these events were not done in a corner, meaning they were public events open to public verification and could be discredited if anyone was there and actually witnessed them. So I think that the emphasis in, in the New Testament is that these events actually happened. You can know that. You can test it. The classic example is Paul saying, you don't believe the resurrection? Fine. Talk to the 500 people who saw him. Don't take my word for it. Don't say, don't think, just believe. Talk to the eyewitnesses. Don't take my word for it. So I think the emphasis in Scripture over and over again, there's so many examples. There's Jesus saying to the Pharisees and the scribes and Pharisees, you don't think I can forgive sins? Fine. I realize that's invisible. But now watch. I will raise this invalid, raise him up and, and allow him to walk again. That's something you can see. Do you remember where he says, if you don't believe that I can forgive sins, then so that you may believe. And then he leaves the sentence hanging and he turns and heals mm-hmm. the quadriplegic man. So the point is, throughout Scripture, there's always this emphasis that you should have good reasons for belief. That It's not even just you know, a modernist notion. We sometimes get that from our postmodern theologians. Oh, that's so modernist. You want good reasons. No, it's scriptural. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that you should have reasons for accepting what God says. Yeah, and I find that so comforting. And, I mean, if... If there really is a God, and there's good evidence that there is, and this God has spoken and knows us, then he knows how he made us, and he knows what we need. And he knows, you know, when John the Baptist is sitting in prison, that he mm-hmm. needs to be reminded of what the Messiah would do when he came from Jesus. That Jesus didn't chastise him in Matthew. He, he said, no, here's to remind him what's going on, what I'm doing. And so that's so, so important. So obviously there's so much I'd love to talk to you about, but in your book, Finding Truth, you actually have developed a way of testing other worldviews based on Romans 1. So can you kind of share a little bit about that and kind of, and then we can maybe unpack some of those principles here in a couple minutes. Yeah, that's a great question because in Romans 1, Paul is speaking to a congregation that had not heard him speak yet. And so he really makes the case for God in a particularly comprehensive way. And what does he say? He says, We have evidence for God from the created order. Now, most of the time when we hear those words, we think of the beauty and complexity of nature. And that's a great way to go. I've written a lot on the intelligent design movement 
and the evidence for God from creation. The evidence for God from creation is actually stronger today than it's ever been because of the fine-tuning of the universe has given us new evidence. The information content of DNA, I think, is the best smoking gun that we've ever had. Written into every cell of every one of our bodies is information, a message, a code. And there's no source of information outside of, outside of an intelligent being. But in Finding Truth, I actually take a different direction just to give us a new angle of approach, which is not only nature, but humanity. Humanity gives evidence for God, too. You and I, because we're humans, give evidence for God. Why is that? Well, in an essence, in a nutshell, it's the cause has to be equal to the effect. So if human beings, because human beings are capable of thinking, the first cause that created them must have a mind. Because human beings are capable of choosing, the first cause that created us must have a will. Or as one Christian philosopher, a French philosopher, sums it up by saying, because a human being is a someone and not a something, the first cause that created us must be a someone. It can't be a something. That is, it can't be a non-personal force, like the forces of nature, as philosophies like materialism or naturalism would tell us. And so, in a nutshell, what Paul is saying is, anything that created humanity must have at least the same capacities that we have of love, will, intentionality, free will, choice, rationality, communication. All of these things that are, that are distinctive to the human being must be in the first cause that created us. Well, that kind of narrows the field. Yeah. <laughs> because there are not that many worldviews out there that propose a transcendent personal agent as the cause of human life. So in many ways, then I unpack that in my book, Finding Truth, I unpack that basic argument and show how you can apply it to many of the major philosophies of our own day. Yeah. And that's, and that's really helpful. You know, and I was thinking about this, you know, it's just, you were talking about the powerful evidence for God and information, you know, requires a mind and things like that. You know, we've seen just this, honestly, a revolution in evidence for God. And it's just an unfortunate irony that just at this time when we see this breathtaking amount of evidence that people are so distracted that they almost don't even have time or awareness to take it in. Has that been your experience? I think that many people just aren't hearing it yet. You know, Christians, I tend to think that Christians have not always taken the responsibility to be missionaries as seriously as they need to. In the West, because Christianity was the dominant worldview for so many centuries, ever since Europe was Christianized in the Middle Ages, we have tended to rest on our laurels. We have tended to act as though we could simply use social pressure to press people into accepting Christianity. You have to realize, I just moved to Texas, <laughs> where the cultural Christianity is stronger than elsewhere in the nation. I moved here from Washington, D.C. And here, more than in the rest of the nation, there is a kind of cultural Christianity. I feel like I've been a bit of a throwback in history to the era when Christians would use social pressure more than genuine persuasion. And I think that Christians have sometimes lost the notion that, no, no, it's incumbent on us 
to be the missionaries, which means we have to learn their language. That is the language of the people we're trying to reach. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ. I used to live in Washington, D.C., and I met a lot of young people who were getting their, their doctoral degrees in international relations. And it was fascinating talking to them because even if they weren't Christians, they were talking about the importance of worldview. Hmm. You know, we tend to run into that word when we read books on Christian worldview. Obviously, they were not reading books on Christian worldview, but in their international relations courses, they were learning that the easy part is the language. The hard part is the worldview. That if you're going to speak effectively into another culture, you need to learn their worldview, how they think, their view of the universe, their deepest beliefs. Often, you know, the, the beliefs that are so deep they're in, that they don't even... They're not even aware of them. They're, they're unconscious beliefs. And I think Christians, you know, when we hear Paul tells us we need to be ambassadors for Christ, we should take that model and think, well, it's our job to learn the language of the secular culture around us. It's our job to learn their worldview and to craft a message they can understand. I have to tell you, this is one of the things that has disappointed me most about since becoming a Christian is that many Christians don't want to take that, take, invest the time and work to understand secular worldviews. So, so this, I think in my, in my experience, that's been the biggest hurdle to overcome, is how do you get Christians to take the time and effort to take their obligation seriously, that we are missionaries and we need to learn the language of the secular people around us? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's incredibly powerful. I remember... Uh one of the statements you actually made in Saving Leonardo that's always stuck with me is, you know, we do need to preach the simple gospel, but it's not simple to the people who are completely confused and don't share any assumptions about truth, God, morality, or anything else. And so we do want to share the good news, but it's not good news until we have actually have a framework with which they can understand it. And so I just, I think that's so important just to do what you're talking about here. Well, that's a good point. And in Finding Truth, then I give people the tools how to do that. In Romans 1, Paul says, if you do not worship the transcendent creator, logically speaking, the only other option is you're going to worship something in the creation. You're going to take some aspect of the created order and turn it into a deity. And so the first step in understanding secular worldviews is to say, okay, what does it select as its God's substitute? And of course, it doesn't mean just golden calves. You know, think of the idols that many people live for today, like success and achievement and love and relationships, or even matter. Intellectually speaking, what about matter? Is matter part of the created order? Of course it is. And so materialism as a philosophy qualifies as an idol in the biblical sense because it puts matter in the place of God as the ultimate self-existent, uncaused cause of everything else. Or what about reason? Can reason be an idol? Sure it can. And there's an ism for that. Rationalism is the view that puts human reason in the place of God as the source and standard of all truth. So that Albert Einstein, interestingly enough, actually called himself a believing rationalist. 
he understood it was a full-blown creed. And so the first step that I proposed to help Christians understand secular worldviews is, look, just cut through all the detail. I have students who are encountering secularisms, secular philosophies for the first time, and they easily get distracted and overwhelmed. And I said, look, just cut through all the detail and ask, what is its idol? What does it put in the place of God? Because that will determine everything else. So in Finding Truth, I give tips like that. How do we make it easier for Christians to find the key elements of the secular worldview so that instead of feeling overwhelmed by it, we can say, okay, we can zero in on the key points. And the first one is find its idol. What does it put in the place of God, just like Romans 1 says? Yeah, and you unpack five of those principles in your book, Finding Truth. Um, The second one is talks about identifying, you know, the reductionism. So can you define reductionism and kind of give an example of what that might look like? Right. This is fascinating because if part of the evidence for God is humanity, if, you know, we are personal beings, there must be a personal God. By the way, let me say that uh, personal in philosophy does not mean warm and friendly. Right. (laughs) Which is how we use it. It means an agent who can think, act, feel, choose, and so on, as opposed to a non-personal force, like in Star Wars, you know, the force be with you, right. or a natural, natural forces. So the argument is, if human beings are personal beings, it gives evidence for a personal God. Well, then what will all secular worldviews do? They will all try to mute or suppress the evidence for God. And remember, Romans 1 says they all suppress the evidence for God by denying that humans are truly personal. They will all end up with a lower view of God. Well, and it's logically necessary anyway, because if you, don't, if you don't see humans as made in the image of God, you will cast them in the image of your idol, of something lower or less than God. If you exchange the glory of God for something in creation, to use Romans, the, the words from Romans, you will exchange the image of God for something in creation. And because that something is always less than God, it will lead to a lower view of humanity. And if you have a low view of the human person, how are you going to treat people? You will treat them as less than human, and that's why Romans 1 ends with that long list of violence and oppression. Most of us remember that. Well, if you want to see what that means, uh, I think it's easiest to understand if you see it fleshed out in history. The 20th century was the bloodiest century ever in human history. And most of the carnage was driven by atheist totalitarian ideologies like Nazism and communism. So if every non-Christian worldview has an idol, then what's the idol of Nazism? What was the one category that it used to reduce people to something less than fully human? Well, it was race, right? Because of race, the Nazis claimed to be Aryans. So if you were the wrong race, if you were Jewish or Slavic or Gypsy, then you could be herded into ghettos, shipped off in boxcars to concentration camps and thrown into the ovens. So race was its idol and race was what it used to dehumanize people. Or think of a communism. What was the idol of communism? What was the one category that it used to determine your, your worth, your standing in society. Well, think 
proletariat versus capitalist. What is that? That's economic class. So if you were the wrong economic class, you could be put in prison, shipped off in boxcars to hard labor camps, worked to death or shot. And so this all explains why Romans 1 starts with idols and it ends with a long list of destructive and self-destructive behavior. That every idol leads to a lower view of human dignity, which leads to violence and oppression. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you know, the famous ideas have consequences, and they have consequences for people, and that's why this stuff really matters. You know, people are like, well, why do I have to think so hard about all these kind of things and learn all the isms? It's like, well, you know, even if we don't name them, those ideas still get embedded in power and politics and law and society. All those things, they happen anyway, and so we've got to, like you've said, be, be missionaries ready to engage that. There's just so much good stuff. We're not going to have time to get to it all. But, you know, principle three is, is test the idol. Principle three talks about does it contradict what we know about the world? So does it fit? And then principle four that you talk about, does it contradict itself? Principle five is make the case for Christianity. Like what does it borrow from Christianity or steal from Christianity in the process? And so I encourage our listeners to definitely check out Finding Truth by Nancy Piercy. There's tons of good stuff in there. But I want to I want to shift a little bit in the conversation. You know, earlier on in, in the interview, you, you talked about kind of students and, and not understanding how to integrate the Christian worldview beyond a Sunday morning. So, you know, here at Impact 360, we get a chance to work with a lot of high school and college and graduate students. So if you were going to kind of share with them some practical ways or first steps to begin integrating their Christian worldview into, say, their academic discipline or their calling, what are some places you might encourage them to begin? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I was walking down the hallway of a Christian college where I was teaching. That was before I came here to HBU. And I saw one of my students reading a book on postmodernism. So, of course, I had to stop and ask him, what are you learning? And he looked at, at me, and his face was sort of stunned. And he said, I'm learning about myself. Hmm. I had no idea how many elements of postmodernism I had absorbed without knowing it. Because he had never studied postmodernism, he had no critical grid. And so he had absorbed a lot of these ideas without even knowing it. So that without, without being aware of it, he was living the sacred-secular split. You know, he was a sincere Christian, but his, his worldview was really dominated by secular ideas from postmodernism. Or here was another example. A young woman wrote me and she said, I grew up in a home where the rule was we only read books by Christian authors. We don't read secular authors. Hmm. You know, you find that sometimes in homeschooling families and so on. And then she said, and then I read your book, Total Truth, and I realized I had absorbed ideas from Kant and Rousseau and other modern thinkers. I read them and I thought, well, that's how I think. Where did I pick up these ideas if I never read them? <laughs> and so the ex in both cases, what's happening is we're all influenced by these ideas, whether we read them directly in their original sources or not. In other words, the general culture is being influenced. The newscasters are studying these ideas in, in their college classes, and so it shapes the way they report the news. The entertainers are reading these ideas in their college classes, and it affects the way they make movies and the way they write books. Everywhere around us, the, 
broader culture is being framed by these ideas, whether we are reading them or not, and we are picking up the consequence of those ideas. And that's why I say to Christian parents, I said, your kid may not be a bookworm who holds up in his room reading these books, but he's still being influenced. And especially, of course, if he goes to a public school or secular university, he's getting these ideas, even if they're not labeled. In fact, especially if they're not labeled, because right. then you absorb them without knowing it. So this is what I tell people when, you know, it's, you need to read secular worldviews partly because you're a missionary and you need to learn the language of the people you're reaching out to, but also for your own sanctification and growth and grace. You need to be developing a critical grid so that you recognize these ideas and don't simply absorb them so that you don't wake up one day and find out that you have a secular mind you may have a Christian heart, but a secular mind, and you are, in fact, living you know, a fragmented, compartmentalized life instead of living the full Christian life as we're called to. So that's a great word. As we wrap things up, we have a lot of parents who listen to our podcast as well. If you could share a word of encouragement or um, vision to parents trying to raise their kids to follow Christ in today's culture, what would you share? I know um, you've homeschooled your kids, and you've try to invest. What are maybe one or two things you might encourage parents with as they try to shape and influence uh, the faith of their children? Well, let me stick with the same theme. I spoke at a classical Christian school recently, and it was a very good school, and they were turning out young people who really had a grasp of Christian worldview. And I think a lot of parents are getting more educated in what it means to have a Christian worldview. But (laughs) I gave various lectures, and one of them was a public lecture, and a young boy, he was only nine years old, He came up to me after my public lecture and said, but how do you know that God is real? How do you know God created the universe? And I said, well, consider the alternatives. And I gave him a little, I said, look, some Christians will tell you the Bible says it, just believe it. But if you really want to have a sense that you have seen it yourself, you've worked it out yourself, and you are personally committed You need to have a method for thinking through the alternatives. And I gave them a real quick rundown of the five principles in finding truth. Here's a strategy for analyzing competing worldviews so that you can figure out whether Christianity answers the questions. If we are personal beings, is there anything else that will answer where we came from outside of a transcendent personal agent? You know, I... I'll propose to you that there is no other answer. And the principal of the school said to me, I get it. We've been so focused on teaching a Christian worldview and refining that and refining that. We have not focused on exposing kids to the alternatives. And it was as a result, even children who are leaving this classical Christian school Too many of them are still losing their faith when they go to college. Mm -hmm. And many of them were saying things like, we need to get deprogrammed from what we learned at that Christian school. Well, how did they feel feel programmed? Because they were not being exposed to the alternatives and being given a strategy for thinking critically about alternatives so that as young adults, they felt they had made the decision. They were still living on borrowed faith. No matter how articulate that borrowed faith was, you know, more, much more developed, much more sophisticated, 
in terms of a Christian worldview. But, you know, to say to somebody, believe this because it's a Christian worldview, is just as fideistic as saying, believe this because the Bible says it. Right. You still need to give students the tools to think through alternatives so that they have a sense that they have made the decision themselves and it's authentic, real, and personal. I love that. That's that's I mean, just to underscore that. I mean, preaching to the choir. I, you know, we have a, a two week summer immersion experience uh, for high school students. And I'm the director of that, and one of the things we do is, yeah, we'll learn about you know, say Islam as a worldview for three or four hours in the classroom, but then we'll head into Atlanta and we'll go to the Al Farouk Mosque and we'll actually watch them observe prayers. We'll the Imam will present to our students and why Islam is true, and our students will get to ask questions. For many of them, it's the first time they've ever encountered mm-hmm. anyone who believes something differently and then we get to debrief it and then it's like oh yeah their view of jesus really is different than our view of jesus and so you know it's just so important um again love your work and finding truth and all your other books too you know time flies i wish we could talk for talk for a few hours but you know it's just been great having you on on the impact 360 podcast and i, and I just really want to thank you for the investment that you've made in scholarship, the investment that you've made in your time to help teach and shape the next generation. Um, your, your stuff's been a huge encouragement to me, as I've already shared. But just thanks for taking the time, and I hope and encourage everybody out there to pick up a copy of Nancy Piercy's book, Finding Truth. So just thanks so much for being on with us today. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, and I just want to thank our listeners and hope this conversation has been encouraging to you. Maybe it's challenged you or stressed you in some ways. And Impact 360, we want to partner with you to help equip the next generation for influence. So until next time, we hope you have all the influence you can right where God has placed you. For more information about our on-campus worldview and leadership experiences for students and our accessible online courses like Explore Truth and Explore the Resurrection, visit impact360.org. Impact 360 Institute. Know. Be. Live.